everyone. This is What in the World, and I am your host, Bumi Akitasotu. Yes, I know it's been a while. So if you are new, this is the podcast for all things related to global politics. And we talk about these issues from the perspective of women and people of color who are experts in the space. We know that the world and global news can be pretty crappy, but we believe understanding it doesn't have to be. So we do crack some jokes and we try to have a little fun. In this fourth season, I am so proud to share that What in the World is a proud member of the Diversity and National Security Network. We are a coalition of national security and foreign policy practitioners working to diversify the sectors. Now, if you want to learn more about this initiative and meet some really amazing experts, check out diversityandnationalsecuritynetwork.com. So it's season four, and our theme for this season is Is America dead? Is it relevant? Does the world even need America's leadership? It's a profound question, I know, um, but we're going to have a series of conversations about this. And we're beginning with the topic of diplomacy. In other words, how the American government, by way of the Department of State, engages with the rest of the world. Here to explain this to us and give us her take is Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley. She is a 30-year diplomat and was the longest serving American ambassador to the Republic of Malta. Her career started off in Middle East issues and she had stints in Iraq, Indonesia, Israel, Tunisia, and has worked on counterterrorism and cyber issues. Ambassador Abercrombie Winstanley was the first woman to head up a diplomatic mission to Saudi Arabia, which is pretty huge. She hails from Cleveland, and you've probably seen her writings in the New York Times and other publications. You may have seen her on television testifying as well. Um, but what I love about Ambassador Abercrombie Winstanley is that she is a huge, huge sci fi fan. <laughs> Yeah, I am. <laughs> I specifically I Star Trek. Oh, I totally saw that. And I thought, oh my God, she is so dope. So dope. So, so dope. Well, in addition to loving sci-fi, um, another interesting fact about you is that, you know, you're from Cleveland, as you mentioned in your bio. So how did you go from Cleveland to this massive ecosystem of foreign policy and national security and becoming eventually an ambassador? Well, coming from Cleveland, it it is a very diverse city. Uh, Specifically, I come from Cleveland Heights, which has a high school when I was attending that offered French, German, Russian, Spanish, and Hebrew as options for foreign languages. And you had to have a foreign language to pass high school. So they're very serious about introducing us and having us knowledgeable. Um, I took Hebrew because my best friend took Hebrew. And so we did the class together and started learning about the Middle East from a very specific perspective, but still some good education, which I continued in college and studied abroad at Tel Aviv University. And after I graduated, uh, I realized I had a very specific perspective and needed to um, expose myself 
to the other side. So that's how I ended up joining Peace Corps and serving in the Arab world and the Sultanate of Oman specifically. Peace Corps is about helping others, about being part of the solution to the world's troubles. And if that becomes something that you value, then diplomacy is a very natural next step. Well, speaking of perspective, what was it like being a diplomat and living abroad or working abroad in countries that were strikingly different, culturally at least, from the United States? I'm sure you have plenty of great stories. (laughs) Yeah. Well, certainly when I started, I I came from a very pro-Israel perspective. You know, my the studying Hebrew, I was being immersed in um, Jewish history and the travails of Jews, you know, certainly between the First and Second World War and then afterwards in the search for a home and the usual information that is put out, some of it truth, some of it propaganda about, you know, a land without a people for a people without a land. Well, of course, after I got there and continued to study and met Arab Israelis, I learned pretty quickly that uh, it was not a land without a people, that there were people there already. Mm. And so getting that perspective, but still I was in Israel. I wasn't in Palestine or, or Arab areas. And so I, I was getting a very distinct perspective. So going off to Oman opened my eyes widely. Going to a country like Oman, where they had good governance, people weren't thinking about the Arab-Israeli conflict when they woke up in the morning and they went to bed at night. And that helped me understand a position in U.S. foreign policy. When we talk about the Arab-Israeli conflict, we were often saying governments in the region used it to distract their population, to distract them from corruption, from poor governance, from oppression of civil society, poor education, lack of jobs. If you have people in the street protesting and rallying for Palestinians, the downtrodden Palestinians, then they're not paying attention to what's in front of them. And not to say that the Palestinians weren't downtrodden, but it did serve to distract them from immediate crises at home. In your role as a diplomat or maybe even coming through the ranks as um, an officer in the Department of State, was there ever a time or a moment that gave you pause and you maybe felt conflicted about the approach that the United States was taking with a particular issue? Oh, all the time, my dear. (laughs) (laughs) All the time. It's one of the things that I speak about now um, with some colleagues from the field. We we have almost a roadshow called Redefining National Security. And Mm -hmm. one of my talking points is, you know, we've been doing this with the same set of folks for a long time and we haven't got it right yet. Mm -hmm. So let's have some more people at the table bringing a more diverse series of perspectives and see, can we do better? I would say yes, often. And even not agreeing with the way that we were conducting our policy, I almost always agreed with the intent. I didn't have qualms about where we were trying to go. I 
firmly believe that the United States was interested in facilitating a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace between Israelis and Arabs. Mm -hmm. And I often told my Arab interlocutors, listen, we're on Israel's side. Don't you get it twisted. Don't be confused. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, we talk about that we want to be, we're the honest broker, that nobody can do this but us. But it's not because we're an honest broker. That part I would never say even though it was among our, my talking points, my watchword as a diplomat was never to lie to my audience. I would never lie. So I never said to people, trust us, we're, we're being an honest broker. What I would say is trust us because we want what's best for Israel. And in order to get there, we need to take care of the Palestinians too. For it to be a just, lasting, comprehensive peace for the Israelis, we cannot screw the Palestinians. And that's why you can trust us to do the right thing, at least to a certain extent. Wow. So actually, that example alone gives kind of heavier meaning uh, to the phrase being diplomatic, right? Like you remained firm in your position about Israel but not at the expense of um, excluding the existence of the Palestinian people. And with such a contentious topic, I'm sure that is a very difficult to do. And you have to be very mindful of the things that you say and intentional about the words that you select. Absolutely. And it, it, it's not always an easy case to make. And it's a challenge I've found even here at home with trying to get people to support certain legislation. And and I've had minority Americans say to me, mm, I don't know if I believe in that because it's not done for us. And I would argue, it, it, no, it wasn't done for you, but you can benefit from it as well. Mm. And, and that was carrying truth from my foreign policy life to the domestic side, yeah. because what I was speaking was true. Well, we are going to talk and try to unpack the connection between the domestic and international space um, a little later on in the show. Before that, though, I do want to share just some basic concepts about foreign policy that some may have missed. Uh, our very first episode was with Ambassador Ruben Brigitte, and we talked about the principles of foreign relations, and we lightly touched on the four Ds. And the four Ds are diplomacy, development, defense, and democracy. Uh, on that same episode, we also talked about the importance of rules and norms, uh, just things that you just kind of know that you just don't do when you're a country um, or when you're a government official. Um, and those rules and norms help keep countries in line. So we're talking on this show about the Department of State. Uh, the primary agency responsible for America's engagement with the world. And my angst about America's leadership and the presence on the global stage, it really stems from me feeling like the rules and norms of how America does diplomacy have changed and not necessarily for the better. So Ambassador, from your tenure at State Department, uh, and we're talking, of course, not about like the Kansas or Ohio State Department, but the Department of State, um, what have been some of the rules or norms or just unwritten agreements that have helped America become just the powerhouse that we've always known it to be? Well, I think 
we have bent the rules over time and that it has helped us a great deal. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I was an ambassador, I conducted myself pretty much the same way I did as an entry-level officer, meaning I was eager to meet my interlocutor, whether they were a member of the government or someone I was meeting in the street while shopping for my home. And I meet people with curiosity and with respect and wanting to know more about them and why they are the way they are and why they think the way they think and view the world the way they view the world. And that is the job of a di diplomat. We, Our job is to go overseas and help our host nation, foreigners, understand U.S. policy priorities, why we do what we're doing, and to get them to support them as well. So we've got to find common ground to get people to understand we think we are doing it the right way or we have the right priorities and we need your help because it's going to be good for you too, in short. Our job is also to understand their way of thinking. And A, understanding them helps them helps us get them to support our policies, but it also makes clear if we're not going to be able to get their support, we can communicate that home as well. It's a very relaxed way of meeting the world. I have been called out and commended for my <laughs> often informality. Wow. I would tell you it works very, very well, even though there was someone in, in Malta who did not think I was uh, uh, formal enough, the way the British are, for instance. Um, but I made friends for America. That was my job, to make friends for America. So the formal things that go along with diplomacy, the formal negotiations, the meetings, uh, the discussions, the formal receptions, blah, 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 all of that has to be done and touched on. But Americans as diplomats are allowed more space. And so, yes, I was cleaning up parks. Yes, I put together the first It Gets Better video for the LGBT community in Malta, produced it with Maltese. Um, yes, we support refugees and with a radio station or build a safe space for youth, things that are not in the formal sense of diplomacy and yet can be so important for building that goodwill and connectivity, particularly when we made missteps, when it was easy for people to criticize the United States or, or to hate us in larger terms. If a number of people had a positive experience, and one of the things that was easy about being in a place like Saudi Arabia, which is large, or a place like Malta, which is small, mm -hmm. is that my impact could be amplified. It was widespread. I mean, because I was the first woman heading up a diplomatic mission in Saudi Arabia, uh, I was on the newspapers a lot. I was on television a lot. I was interviewed a lot. When I went places, people knew who I was and what I was saying, what I was about. Mm -hmm. In Malta, 
although much of that was the same, I also walked the country. So I was meeting people on boardwalks and in mm. shops and, and pausing and having one-on-one or two-on-two conversations in addition to all of the high-level diplomacy that I was doing. Mm. And it, it was something that my colleagues were not doing and something that was very, very effective. This comment you've made triggers a question in my mind because on the one hand, you've had experience working in countries, the United States and that country are homies, right? We're, we're good, we're on the same page, we like each other. And you've also led and worked in countries where that's not the case, where our relationship with that country, you know, requires probably a little bit more work and, and there's a longer history of not being homie friends. So what would you say to somebody who would argue that your approach to diplomacy is kind of fluffy or too nice and it's not hardball enough for the tough countries like North Korea or Iran? Yeah. Well, I would not consider myself fluffy, number one. Good. <laughs> um, and I would say absolutely it worked extraordinarily well in Saudi because it was an honest approach. I wasn't trying to be friendly. Mm. Americans are known for being friendly. We are friendly. I am friendly. You are. I, I'm interested. So, so it wasn't an act. And people can tell if you're faking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... It's not for everyone, but it is a comfortable place for many Americans because we are far more informal than Europeans. Mm. We are far more. Now, it might not work as well in some place like Japan, which is more formal. Certainly, there are times when people might have looked at me quizzically or disapprovingly, but for the most part, it worked very well. And, uh, you know, as a representative of the 8,000 pound gorilla around the world. Mm. I didn't have to care about those who were disapproving if I was being overall effective. So it it worked very well. And certainly even in Saudi, I remember the foreign minister saying to me once he's passed, foreign minister Basil, and he, he was cautioning me about my going around to different places in the country. And he was cautioning me that I should lower my profile. And he said, Gina, we think you're doing a great job. You're doing well for America, but everyone does not appreciate it. And you need to lower your profile. Now, he was talking about very conservative people, and he was talking about terrorists, which, of course, Mm. they did indeed attack my consulate. So, it doesn't work for everyone. I understand that. But it was a, it is a genuine way of approaching the world. It is a genuine American way of approaching the world. And it comes with deep respect for the other. Those values make sense to me. Uh, and I can see how kind of like in like regular life, if you're good to people by and large and uh, you develop trust between people and people feel like you respect them, they're more likely to look out for you and more likely to like raise a red flag if if there's something that's off. And on a larger level with presidents and secretaries of state or ambassadors such as yourself, yeah, I can definitely see where you'd want to, you know, use whatever tools you can to develop a relationship so that 
if in fact you have blind spots that there are people looking out for you. That makes total sense. Yeah, those sorts of relationships are, you know, not easy to establish, but it's important to do so. That's why diplomats, when we're preparing our leaders for meetings with foreign leaders, you know, we go into such detail about the background and their families and their interests because we're trying to help them build a rapport as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. so that the real work can get done in an atmosphere of trust. So speaking of trust, part of developing trust is knowing a lot about the institution, the history, the people um, involved in whatever situation you're in. With the State Department, I feel like it's a an enigma to a lot of Americans. They don't quite understand its relevancy to their daily life. They don't understand how it's structured. They don't know how it's structured. They don't know how it's broken down. And it, it is an intricate institution. And so, Ambassador, could you just break down the structure of the State Department and how its missions are set up, how its offices are set up, and the various important roles or departments that exist within the organization to make it function the way that it does. I mean, I think I would describe the State Department somewhat as a layer cake or wedding cake that gets bigger at the bottom and narrow at the top. You know, so the secretary at the top The deputy secretary, sometimes there are two of them, then a larger circle of six undersecretaries, and then, you know, 14 assistant secretaries and 25 deputy assistant secretaries and on down. The essential parts of it can depend on where the focus of the foreign policy is and the portfolios can change. So you might have an undersecretary for conflict management, which will have six assistant secretaries reporting to him or her. And then you might do away with that one and and give those six assistant secretaries to a different undersecretary. So those things ebb and flow. They shift depending on what the priorities are. In some administrations, counterterrorism was a very big issue. Um, In others, it might be other global issues, you know, global women's affairs or climate change or cyber. I mean, it depends on the leadership. But what is always essential is a well- trained, well-selected workforce. And that is the damage that has been done the last three years in this administration, where the president of the United States has said he doesn't need any diplomats because he makes the policy and he carries it out. And I'm paraphrasing. He said something like that, not exactly, but basically he said he didn't need any diplomats. And he has conducted himself as if he doesn't need any diplomats. But there are a lot of things that we could have accomplished. There are a lot of things that we have lost a leadership role on. We are going to have an extraordinary job of rebuilding to be done either in one or five years. We will have work to do. It could be, though, that part of the reason why Trump said we don't need diplomats is maybe he thinks, like a lot of Americans do, that diplomats just kind of sit around and go to pool parties and have really fancy receptions um, and they're sort of living off the taxpayer dime you know, living this lavish life um, abroad. 
Well, I think people have gotten a better idea after watching the testimony of Masha yeah. and Bill Taylor and the others that, no, this stuff is not easy. It is not easy work. And I know that we've lost a lot of knowledge and expertise because people have left the State Department. Um, and these are individuals and certainly and certainly they all have historical information that can assist the president of the United States or the secretary of state or any number of national security leaders in understanding the impact of their behavior and their decisions. Yeah. One of the real gaps that is now in our foreign policy uh, structure is sufficient diversity, certainly at the top. We have not been this pale and male, I believe, since because it, if you saw the GAO report that, in fact, the number of African-Americans and the number of women has gone down since 2002 is when they um, started the uh, study. It's It's been a long time since we were this poorly spread across representation of Americans. And that's going to have to be corrected because we're missing out on a lot of knowledge, a lot of options for solutions, a lot of recommendations because the people simply are not there. Would you say that um, diversity in the way that you've described it is sort of our, our greatest diplomatic strength or is there something else? I definitely think it is, and it is coupled with other strengths, our our national values that generally put emphasis on what you bring to the table as opposed to, you know, what family you came from. And I've, you know, I've had colleagues around the world who explain how they got into their foreign ministries, and it's usually contacts, it's mm-hmm. usually because they've got the right name or went to the right school, et cetera. And we have worked very hard to move beyond that, to really tap into the richness of the American uh, population for our representatives, and we are better for it. So we've got a lot of work to build that back up. We have a lot of work to do. Well, we've talked about diplomacy uh, in terms of what diplomats do, the structure of the State Department, and some of the complexities of negotiating and navigating with foreign leaders. Here we are in a global pandemic uh, and doing diplomacy in this context is really kind of um, fascinating. Uh, And it's interesting to watch, at least from the outside. Um, Unfortunately, we're, we're fighting against our leader on that one. I mean, there are ways that we should be approaching this. I mean, this is a worldwide problem that is going to take the world to resolve it. And there was a wonderful um, piece on um, the radio this morning about scientists around the world trying to work together to get a vaccine, to get a solution Mm -hmm. in the fastest possible way, and that it should not belong to one country or another. Uh, And the challenge of wherever it comes from, that the pressure will be to vaccinate people in that country before Mm. other countries. And, And everyone in that country won't be the most needy for it. And how do you break out of that? The United States has been a leader in putting together international coalitions, and we should be doing so now. And when you use 
words like, you know, Chinese virus or, or Wuhan virus, when the science says that is not the appropriate name for it, and you also end up with, uh, you know, attacks and anger against your own citizens because they are Asian, mm -hmm. something is wrong there. And so the diplomats are going to have to fix what our leadership is breaking. This goes to the relevancy and the death part that I've been questioning. And that I guess my question to you is with COVID, if you were, say, the, the ambassador to China, the U.S. ambassador to China, how would you go about balancing this situation where you've got a president who's not making your job easier and then you've got <laughs> a Chinese government who rightfully is kind of like, ah, we want to help y'all, but we kind of don't because this guy over here is kind of talking crazy. So <laughs> how, yeah. how, how would you sort of navigate this as an ambassador? Well, I mean, we've done it before and, and, and there are all kinds of reasons where bilateral relationships become troubled. You know, uh, uh, diplomats, our job is to smooth troubled waters and ruffled feathers. Um, I think I would be saying, I'd be quoting Dr. Fauci and, and other <laughs> medical personnel and scientists, and I would make the case truthfully that the American people are hearing from the scientists as well, mm -hmm. uh, and that we are trying to heed their words as we conduct ourselves uh, to deal with this pandemic. Now, the other part of that, of course, is that there is a strong belief um, that the Chinese have not been honest with their numbers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they underestimated the number of deaths, let alone underestimating the impact of the virus at the very beginning. So that goes both ways. And my job as an ambassador, as a diplomat in China might also include pressuring my interlocutors to present more truthful numbers to the rest of the world so that the rest of the world could get a handle on it. Are we in line with what happened in China or are we doing something less well that is leading us to have a higher number of deaths, a higher uh, rate of spread? And so we would be calling for transparency in that. And so, you know, it, it goes both ways. And something that people may not realize um, that's actually helpful about is that America and many countries don't have to operate alone. They can operate in uh, what's called multilateral institutions. <laughs> One of those examples being the World Health Organization, which we've been also hearing a lot about in the news and which we will also talk about uh, in this season. But how does the State Department ambassador work with multilateral institutions such as the World Health Organization? What benefits are there for the United States and certainly the American tax dollars what benefits are there for the United States to participate um, in this space? Like what does WHO bring to the table? Absolutely. We are a great believer in multilateralism. I mean, WHO 
for Ebola or the FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization. I mean, any number of international organizations um, have a reach and a depth of understanding and a breadth of personnel to do things that we could not do in a bilateral. Either the American people are not interested in expending our resources that way, or we don't have enough people, or it's too far, or whatever. And so we are great funders of international organizations. Now, we also work on these things bilaterally. So when Ebola was rising in Africa and we needed to uh, not only bring our resources to bear, but we needed the whole world to do so. One of the things that U.S. ambassadors did around the world, we were instructed by Washington to go in and get a minimum of $50,000 from every government around the world. We asked everybody to contribute at least that much. And countries did. And that's, you know, going from the ambassador to the president or the ambassador to the prime minister or the foreign minister, whoever the appropriate interlocutor was for that request. But we did it, we made it, and countries stepped up and we stood in solidarity with each other. And that's something that we need to do with this that is is difficult. We we really are in this together or we're in this alone. Wow. Your explanation has been super helpful, Ambassador Abercrombie Winstanley. Um, And I think this is a good time uh, and a good place to include a comment from a listener about their thoughts on whether or not America is dead. And we can have you give your take. Let's hear what Robert from Washington, D.C. had to say. My name is Robert Stevens. I don't think that America is dead. I think that America is a model of a flexible form of government, regardless of all of its deficiencies. I think that corruption is ultimately the issue with, I guess, any form of government. I think that if we can solve the issue of the corruption, there's a possibility that we can continue to evolve the American system in a beneficial manner for all of its citizens. Ambassador, what do you think about Rob's comments? I think he's got a good point there. Corruption is an issue in almost every government, although we have done better in the past and we certainly can do better. Uh, but, but graft and influence peddling and all the rest of it, I think, is human nature and it's just something that constantly has to be fought against. I think we can be a model government. Uh, I think this administration is showing, is showing us the weaknesses in our form of government that we thought it was stronger and more resilient than it has turned out to be on the one hand, but it also depends on how quickly we recover from it. But it is clear that one unreasonable person, one person who is not respectful of the ideals and values that this country has been founded on, even if we have frequently not lived up to them, let's be clear, we have not, but they still are our founding documents and what we aspire to. And this administration of saying, oh, we don't need diplomats and we don't, you know, we're, the weaknesses have been shown. So it's up to us as Americans to demand that the gaps and lapses and weaknesses be fixed. But we know where they are now. And until this administration, we didn't. So that's a good thing. Now we know. 
you know, we, we have faltered before. That's, that's the part that gives me hope. I, I tell people we, we messed up during uh, the Second World War with interning citizens, putting them in camps. We messed up in the McCarthy period when we did witch hunts, really witch hunts of American citizens. Uh, we messed up with the lack of transparency on how the Vietnam War was conducted. That was a travesty that was, resulted in the loss of thousands of lives. And we messed up after 9-11. But when, when we mess up, one of the things... Americans can be proud of, for instance, with regard to the interpretation and the carrying out of the Patriot Act after 9-11, the first truly insightful criticism of what was going on in the Department of Justice didn't come from civil society, it didn't come from the media, it came from the Inspector General of the Department of Justice. Mm. It came from the, the employees looking at how they were conducting themselves with a clear eye and criticizing from within. The largest demonstrations against our ill, ill-conceived war in Iraq, the largest demonstrations in the world against invading Iraq were in the United States. So we do speak out and we do self-correct, not mm-hmm. as quickly as I would like, and I'd, I'd like us to make fewer <laughs> missteps, but we are not afraid to look hard at ourselves. And I, I, I won't say that that makes us unique, but it does make us rare. And so what would you say then, Ambassador uh, Abercrombie Wood Stanley, in your opinion, is America dead? America is stumbling <laughs> right now. We are, we're stumbling, we're stumbling. Oh, if I'd let it, I could say my heart is broken, but my hope is in our future. We have so many brilliant young people like yourself who are dedicated, who are clear-eyed. I have a great deal of hope about our resurgence and that we are going to do it in the right way. So we're not dead. Okay. We're just wounded. We're wounded. Okay, so we're not dead. We're We're wounded. We're wounded. Um, I can I can rock with that. Uh, and thank you again for just giving us all a sense of how the State Department works um, and what diplomats are up against, and just the nuance of you know how they have to navigate relationships with other countries. It's not as simple as you know throwing a party or tweeting things. Uh, it really takes a lot of effort and. Um, I just thank you. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. No, we're absolutely not giving up. Although I do give the United States a side eye every once in a while, but we're definitely not giving up. And this is actually a great opportunity to segue to uh, a tradition we have here on the show where we try to end on a positive note and use music to do so. So Ambassador Abercrombie Winstanley, what is a song that keeps you in a good mood when maybe you feel like giving up hope or you're giving a hard, hard side eye to the United States? Gosh, Temptations. Let's be frank. Old school. Old we'll go school. for the Temptations. I that like would, the that temptation. would get me up and dancing. <laughs> Definitely. Well, hopefully if you're listening to this, you've gotten to this point in the show, you are enjoying some music, you're feeling hopeful about whatever is happening in the world. Um, so Ambassador, where can people find you if they just want to stay 
up to date with you and, and learn from all the work that you are doing in the foreign policy and national security space? Oh, they can find me on Twitter at AmbGinaAW and LinkedIn. Gina Abercrombie Win Stanley. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, make sure you all follow Ambassador Abercrombie Win Stanley. Be sure you follow us here at What in the World. We can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, under WITW Pod. Let me know what you're thinking, your questions, what's been going on in your mind in this time of COVID, and how are you feeling just about the United States' leadership in the world? And make sure you are on the lookout for our next episode on race and foreign policy. Uh, Ambassador Abercrombie Stanley, thank you so much again for being on the show and kicking off our series around Is America Dead? Thank you. My pleasure.